You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. As Bella Ellis, Rowan Coleman is the author of the Bronte Sisters' Mysteries. The first one was The Vanished Bride. Her newest novel is The Diabolical Bones. A thank you for joining me, Bella. Hello! Lovely to be here! It's so much fun to read these books. and I think in part because it's apparent how much fun you are having writing them. And I want you to talk about that as I think a really core critical component of getting the books written and getting them out there and making them so much fun for the readers to enjoy. Oh, thank you. Um, yes, I mean, I do really enjoy writing them. I do. They're exactly the sort of book that... Um, that I want to read and they always say you know you should write the books that you want to read and I think that that's completely true I love them because they transport me into the world of uh, the Bronte family who I just love anyway as a super fan from the point of view of a super fan and also it's adventure you know and it's intrigue and it's getting to creep through spooky houses or um delve into witchcraft and dark mysteries and you know it's just extremely fun and puzzle solve to solve a puzzle uh to solve a mystery i have to think of one in the first place and that's really good fun as well so i'm afraid to say it is just jolly good fun from the start to the finish which as a british author we're not really supposed to have fun writing but we're supposed to be terribly serious but we but i'm just having a delightful time <laughs> you know it's apparent too that the research you do uh is also really fun because and it's fun for us to get to see the people that we kind of sort of know we've read little bits about maybe if we've read about the bronte sisters but to see the to see them fully fleshed out, these uh, characters as as characters, is a lot of fun. And I'm thinking in this book, we get a lot of, of Tabby, who who was was there in fact, but now in your books, she gets to come to life, and it, that's one of the most fun parts of this book, I think. Oh yes, I didn't actually foresee how much Tabby Aykroyd would become uh, an important part of the books, uh, but she. You know, she was an important part of the Bronte family. She was very much um, a mother to the to the Bronte children. They lost their mother when they were very young, and they had Aunt Branwell um, to help bring them up. But Tabby was always there, uh, apart from the uh, a few months when she'd broken her leg and she couldn't work for a bit. Um, but she kind of always raised them at her knee, and she raised them at her knee with these stories of fairy tales and folklore. And so... It seemed to me quite natural that Tabby would know, you know, she would know all of the old Yorkshire folklore and she would be able to tell them about the secrets of the moors and the and the legends uh, that are associated with the area and which are part of the Diabolical Bones story. And she's just brilliant, really. She's sort of like um, Giles in Buffy the Vampire Slayer. <laughs> you know... <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, one of the things that I, I really enjoyed about this book 
especially in reading it right after the first book, was that in the first book, you did a great job of bringing up the supernatural, but never really looking directly at it. And, and I think that this is a really important distinction and something you do very well, which is to immerse yourself in the perceptions of characters who see the supernatural. Now, when you're doing that, you're also world building for those characters. And the question that the reader has, is the world that the author is building, does that actually include those supernatural um, creations as facts? Or are they merely things that the characters see because they believe in that, in the, that vision of their world? And I think in the first book, you leave that somewhat up in the air, although it's quite clear that Anne is, is a little more observant of things that aren't there than the other ones. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair to say, yeah. Um, yes, I mean, it just was a part of their world. It was a part of their world for you. Um, they, did, they lived right next door to a graveyard, um, and people died all the time. And the sort of ancient kind of Celtic ways of living alongside the dead and honouring the dead and honouring the spirits of the dead was still very much part of day-to-day -day culture in the mid-19th century. Um, there was, you know, still if somebody died, you'd take a, you would take a feast out to the to the bees, the local bees, and leave them a feast uh, as part of the funeral feast to, so that you could tell them the news of the passing. If you didn't do that, that was terribly bad luck. And, um, you know, you put the little children's shoes would be buried in, in the above a door or in the eaves of a house to ward off bad luck. Um, around, uh, from this period up until, you know, probably the t early 20th century. And, um, you, you would plant certain plants in certain areas to keep away the witches, notably a rowan tree. Um, and it was just part of life. And it was, I think Tabby says, she doesn't say belt and braces because I had to take that out because it turns out that phrase comes later. It came into use later in history. But she originally said it was a belt and braces approach. You know, you go to church on a Sunday, but you don't want to offend the old gods and the old, you know, old ways and the spirits of your ancestors either so it's both of these things living concurrently alongside one another i i one of the things that that i noticed in, in this book i think was how easy easily um you put us in the perceptions of each uh, of the characters you know and charlotte and, and emily and I'm wondering if when you're writing the chapters from their perceptions, do you write like maybe three or four Emily chapters and then three or four Charlotte chapters and then interweave them or to, to, to get into the I flow? Don't. I don't. I've never been able to do that. I, I have to doggedly write in, uh, in what's the word, in just, you know, one after the other in... Chronological. Um, because I just don't know why I can't do it. So what will happen is that I write, I will write a first draft and then I'll go back and, and then I may add in chapters mm. from, you know, from different. So I'm, in fact, I'm just at that process now with uh, the third Bronte Mysteries where I'm going back to a completed first draft and adding in 
action where I need it and detail and nuance and research where I need it. Um, but I have to write a first, the first draft completely, in, you know, from beginning to end without skipping any bits uh, before I can do anything else. I, I don't know why. It's quite annoying. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what I think makes it uh, more readable. If you do, you, I, how much of your a sense of your endings do you have? Do you make them uh, up as you go? Like there's a lot of a lot of twists in this book. I usually know whereabouts it's going to end, um, mm. but I never really know how I'm going to get there. And that's um, why they're fun uh, to read. Yeah. Yes. Because. Because it's an, it's an adventure for me as well, and I never really quite know how the mystery is going to go and how I'm going to. I set myself quite a lot of problems at the beginning of, <laughs> of the process, and it and I literally have to solve them myself during the writing. So I'm right there with the sisters trying to figure out what's going on and how I can possibly unravel this. Um, and it's it's just fun. It's great. It is really great fun, and it's exciting. So the, the further I get into the story, the faster I write, and the more chapters I'm writing, so I want to get to the end and see what happens. <laughs> you know, um, it, it strikes me that this book is really is full-on embrace of the Gothic. The, the first yeah. book I thought was uh, had a little bit more of the British mystery feel to it. This is yeah. this is full on gothic, and I'm wondering: Are you maybe conceiving of writing a series where you kind of like jump from genre to genre of different? You, I mean, I, I'm. Are we going to see a grand dame guignol? <laughs> All, uh, what is it? Whatever happened to Baby Jane? <laughs> I mean, I think I think it will be it will be. I'm trying to think about the third book. The third book is less is less gothic i think mm -hmm. a little bit less gothic and perhaps a little bit more dickensian um in a way that sounds like fun Dickens do dickings um so i think it's quite i do enjoy i love 19th century literature so i do sort of enjoy stepping into the different tones and genres of literature as a whole mm -hmm. um but also the works of the brontes themselves covered all of these genres so you have mm. books that are highly gothic like Wuthering Heights mm. um, and Jane Eyre and then you have books more that are more mannered and more sort of um, Austenish like Agnes Grey for example which is very much more more aligned to Jane Austen than it is to Charlotte Bronte um, and then you have books like The Tenant of Wildfell Hall which are much more about society and the you know the way that people are forced to live and and the lengths they have to go to to survive in an unfair and unequal society so yeah there's a lot of there's a lot of ground there's a lot of room for exploration of diff of these different ways that they put their novels together and that they wrote about their their favorite subjects um, which means that I can shift the tone a little bit from book to book. And I think The Diabolical Bones was, you know, always going to be a very gothic, wintry, snowbound, um, fairly sinister mystery mm. with some witches. Well, a wise woman. We don't say witches. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> you know, one of the things that struck me, have any of the sisters... Uh, writings about Gondol and they're kind of what I think of as like Narnia-esque fantasies. Does any of that survive or has anybody ever tried to like assemble that into a, a semblance of the stories that the sisters intended? Somebody has. Somebody has. In fact, um, I was recommended that, that book just the other day and I thought I might have it but I don't think that I do and I can't remember the title of it annoyingly um, but yes somebody did assemble um, all of the Gondor poems um, I'm not sure about Angria but someone did assemble, try to assemble all the Gondor poems into order to make sense of um, the story so that and that actually is really useful because I think when you're reading Emily's poetry it's really great to get an idea of the of the sort of inner workings of her mind. I mean, she lived in Gondol much of the time, and also to sort of be able to guess at which of her poems are referring to the real world and which are referring to the Gondol world, because there's an awful lot of speculation over you know some poems that she's written which are desperately sad heartbreaking love poems and people were like well who did she write that about um and of course the answer is probably somebody she made up but we don't know <laughs> you know um for you this has been a kind of a lifelong obsession yeah but you we talked about last time about how you started off at 10 and i'm wondering um one of the things that that interested me is that you, it's quite obvious from these books and from their writings that the the Brontes were well ahead of their times in terms of their their ideas about feminism. Essentially, they were pro they were feminists before anyone dared speak the word. So, I'm wondering how that might have influenced your pursuit of them and, and continued interest in them because they are at once of their time, but also. Uh, timeless and, and well ahead of their time so well ahead of their time it's it's it still takes my breath away when i when i'm reading i'm currently rereading jane eyre and i'm currently rereading pen of wildfell hall at the same time and it's just astonishing how ahead of their time they were actually um i think the first thing that attracted to me to them was um the recognition of strange little children because I was a strange little child and so like many actually many people who love the Brontes they they you know if they if they love them as a child it's usually because they see strange little children that are like them and that's quite comforting um and and then I just fell in love with the stories I mean the stories are just magnificent um and breathtaking and exciting and wild then I think probably only in the last five years or so have I really come to think about them in terms of what incredible achievements they made during that few got those few golden years that they were writing. And they they just they just rose up from like, you know, phoenixes from a, a lower class lower middle class social position to as women, unmarried women with no other means of support, nobody advocating for them, no friends or connections in publishing, um, 
and created this success in their within their own lifetimes, particularly for Charlotte, based just on determination and talent. And that's that's it. And I don't think that they would ever think of themselves particularly in terms of feminism, although Anne does say in her preface to Tenet of Wildfell Hall that it does should shouldn't matter whether a book's been written by a man or a woman, it should stand alone on its merits. Um, but that they just had the courage to try is an absolute testament to them because there are so many women in their position who just would never have, they would never have realized they could try. And so in a way, because the, the because the sisters did try and they did make that success, they opened the door for hundreds of thousands of of writers that came after them, including me, as I kept, you know come from a working class background, which class is a big deal in, in over here. Uh, first of my family ever to go to university prior, you know, for generations we were farm labourers, and uh, um, I often think about my great 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 grandmother who was um a housemaid at the time the brontes were writing she was a housemaid in berkeley square which is when my very first literary agent had an office and um and i often think about her who, who may very well have been an imaginative strange little girl like i was who could have told stories and went to write novels but never would have had the opportunity to even consider it an education to even consider thinking about writing novels but and it's thanks to writers like Charlotte, Emily and Anne that a few generations later here I am with you know writing novels for a living and having had a really great education with a huge love of literature and books so I think what they did for for women um for creative women for everybody from a from a lower social background is it's unquantifiable really because it's just immense it's absolutely immense wouldn't you know, be, i would hear if they hadn't have done what they'd done when when you talk about it, you speak really well of it that that that's fantastic i think one of the things that i noticed in this book is that as much as has changed between now and then technologically uh socially not so much so and you do a good job of reminding us of that lacing that into the book yeah and there are some thorny issues uh mm. in the Bronte's works um notably around race they you know they particularly if we're talking about Bertha in Jane Eyre um and perhaps Heathcliff in Wuthering Heights whose whose race is ambiguous um, that are difficult to uh, accept from a 21st century point of view, but I think that are important to acknowledge. And I firmly believe that if Charlotte was here today, she would be 100% for equality of all people. She would have a 21st century worldview, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and so, and, 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 and very much the Bronte family themselves were on the wrong end of racism mm. because they were uh, an Irish family. Patrick came from Ireland. Uh, some people will say that Charlotte actually spoke with an Irish accent, although we can never know that for sure. Um, he changed his name. Time, I beg your pardon? Uh, Patrick changed his name. 
Patrick changed his name. And at that time, in the, in the mid-19th century, um, the, the, they'd be just after the dreadful, dreadful potato famine in Ireland, and uh, which is all the fault of British colonialism and, and the oppression of the Irish people. It's a horrible part of British history. Um, and it resulted in thousands of Irish people coming into England seeking jobs and, and uh, work and places to live, which then resulted in the press basically just villainizing these poor people uh, in an absolutely dreadful way. And, um, and, and, and that led through to Charlotte and her, uh, Emily and Anne and their father being treated, um, you know, differently because they were Irish as well. And I think when you think about it in that perspective from today, you think the idea that at the same time, uh, the author who wrote The Water Babies, whose name I've I have forgotten, refer to Irish people as um, ignorant chimpanzees. Mm, yeah, that's what you say in the book. <laughs> if you think about that, if using if you use terms like that today about somebody of of, a, of you know any ethnic origin, how deeply offensive and hurtful and plain wrong it is. Mm -hmm. These were the conditions that they themselves were were trying to deal with there was a, such a stigma around being Irish or being of Irish descent um, and so I'm I'm confident that Charlotte would definitely be on the side of equality for all peoples if she was uh, if she could be here right now I'm pretty sure that's what she would say um, but on the other hand I did want to bring that into the diabolical bones because I think we forget how long discrimination, uh, particularly racial discrimination, has been an absolute thorn in our side and that it's a, just a terrible poison that never, ever results in anything good. Um, and they knew that and most of us know that, but it's still such a terrible, horrible, shameful problem that we live with in all areas of society today um and it's one that we've all got to face up to i think no matter who you are no matter if you even if you think well i'm not racist you know there there is there's reason to scrutinize yourself and to look at yourself because there is so much unconscious bias that we've been brought up with that we all of us need to think about what we're doing and saying and how we are allies to other people and to try and be better allies, like Anne would. Mm -hmm. If Anne Bronte was here, she would be marching with Black Lives Matter. She would be 100% doing her best to be an ally to people who have not had a fair shake of the tree. You know, it's interesting to be able to detect that and intuit that when we read read your books about them in terms of creating their characters, you know, the, the different shades. We see Emily is just like, uh, she would be writing like some really bizarre fantasy series and then in a, in a room festooned with maps of, of continents she'd imagine and she talked about three people. Oh, she would. Uh, she wouldn't talk to anybody, no. She might have, I think she'd probably quite like being online. Mm. I think she'd quite like Twitter. She might drop one or two tweets 
a day. Um, but she wouldn't, she'd be so delighted that she didn't have to go anywhere or do anything, <laughs> see anybody, <laughs> now, live like a lovely hermit. <laughs> yes. Now, um, this book uh, begins with the sisters having uh, had solved one problem that was not so exciting, <laughs> the missing cow. The missing cow. <laughs> oh, it will be glamorous. <laughs> but I can't. It, that that makes perfect sense. But you, you take us to a, a real uh, place in in this in this book, and I think that's one of the things that makes these books so powerful. You really capture the Yorkshire landscape. I, I drove around it terrified because it was on the wrong side of the road, and it, the lanes were about just about wide enough for me to go around, and I would. It's, constantly waiting for, to head-on collisions <laughs> in the opposite direction that said yeah. it was beautiful 90 miles an hour <laughs> <laughs> exactly yeah. now, now uh, have you spent have you lived there um i i more or less lived there um while i was writing this while i'm writing these books until lockdown came mm. um uh, friends that uh, who live in a place called Pondon Hall, which features actually in a diabolical bones. Um, they the sisters go there to talk to Robert Heaton and to the Weavers, mm. um, and to use the library, which they did often go to go to Pondon Hall to use the library. Um, and it's a beautiful place. And I wrote a novel uh, and in the name Rowan Coleman that's set there, and all and that's when I came up with the idea for the Bronte Mysteries, and so. That's become my second home over the last few years, and I go there as much as I possibly can. I haven't been there now since August because we are in lockdown most of the time in the UK. Um, but just yesterday, I was able to book for May, so I'll be back there again in May. And I am trying quite hard to buy Condon Hall. <laughs> so if you could all just buy, you know, lots of copies of of the Brunte books and, and then get some copies for your friends. That would be super helpful. <laughs> so, and I could buy this house once frequented by the Brunte sisters, often frequented by the Brunte sisters and Branwell, who was great drinking buddies with the Heatons. He used to come around and get drunk. I really like Branwell. I think he's so he's such a, a fun character in this because he, he is clearly flawed. He understands he's flawed, and he really wants to be better, but he just can't. And it makes him a really appealing uh, character in terms of combining the combination of opposite inclinations. How much do we know about Branwell? We know we know quite a lot about Branwell. Um, he his his kind of scandalous affair was. It wasn't really well documented, but it was written about quite soon after Charlotte died by uh, Elizabeth Gaskell in her biography of Charlotte. Um, and she firmly lays the blame for the demise of the Brontes' children at the door of Mrs. Robinson, who Branwell had an affair with, which I think is really actually quite unfair. Um, <laughs> you know, it takes two people to have an affair, right? It wasn't just Mrs. Robinson, the seductress. But obviously, at the time, Mrs. Gaskell felt that if Mrs. Robinson hadn't had an affair with Branwell, then Branwell wouldn't have descended into alcoholism and drug addiction, and he wouldn't have died. And then that meant that Emily wouldn't have picked up tuberculosis at Branwell's funeral, and then Anne wouldn't have caught it from her. 
So, you know, she basically lays three deaths at the door of Mrs. Robinson, which seems a bit unfair. However, um, Mrs. Gaskell's biography is a really important resource because it's the first biography and it's the closest to Charlotte's lifetime. And she knew Charlotte. Uh, so we know quite a lot about Brenwell's affair via that biography and also because he wrote uh, to his friends, uh, Francis Leyland and to other friends about his hopes and dreams for Mrs. Robinson. Um, and also because he wrote poems to her, which he had published in uh, the local press, knowing that she would see them. I mean, he didn't say, oh, Mrs. Robinson, I love you, but it was very thinly veiled, you know. Um, and we know because a lot of people saw it happen. And actually, this is spills on into the third book, but I don't think it's a spoiler to tell you um, that we he he really cherished hopes that one day he could be together with Lydia Robinson. And then her husband died and he was so happy because he thought, well, this is it. Now I can marry her. And she sent her coachman to tell him that she couldn't marry him because her husband had written a will in such a way that if she ever married again, she'd be disinherited. Um, which plunged him right into despair, and he never recovered from that. And worse still, it transpired that actually it wasn't true. She could, she because not only could she marry again, she did marry again uh, after Branwell died. It's very sad. Now, um, after having solved the the mystery of the missing cow, the sisters come upon a, a, a new, <laughs> yeah, a, 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 I don't know. <laughs> Much more, much more appropriate for them. Uh, but the pl the place where it takes place is um, considered a, perhaps a, a version of Wuthering Heights. So, so talk about that place. Did you actually visit that? Uh, yes. Yeah, I've been there. It's many, a small many... house, right? So Top Withens is a location um, right up at the top of the moor, which was for a good three centuries of farmhouse mm -hmm. um it's now derelict in in the time that uh emily wrote wuthering heights it was a farmhouse however she for, for wuthering heights she made a new much grander house out of ponton hall mm -hmm. my dream house that i hoped to buy and um high sunderland house which is a very gothic house with the gargoyles and the Cannellations that we are familiar with from Wuthering Heights, and she sort of put them together in one brilliant creation and popped them up at, at Top Withens. Um, but it, it was really difficult for people to kind of understand that she did this. So I don't know why, if it's some kind of latent misogyny, but there's a plaque at Top Withens which says, you know, this is believed to be the geographical location of Wuthering Heights, although no such house ever stood on this location. And I and I feel like shouting at it. Yes, but she used her imagination, you fools. She was an author. Um, anyway, I digress. So that's what Emily did with Wuthering Heights. She created this house called Wuthering Heights and put it on top of uh, the moor. And I wanted to basically do the same thing. So I created Top Withens Hall, which is... Um, uh, a nod to the actual location and also a little homage to Emily's imagination and <laughs> being able to invent a house. <laughs> Shock horror. <laughs> now, the Gothic genre is pretty interesting. 
We here in the 20th century who think we invented everything think we invented what I think is generally called the, the Scooby-Doo version of the supernatural, which is it's Mr. Winnington in the, running the amusement park who's turning yes. on lights and making sounds. <laughs> but <laughs> actually, that uh, lookout was, was first handled by, by Anne Radcliffe. Who like who wrote mysteries that would pretend to be gothic and supernatural, but then she'd explain it all away. And I, you do a bit of that in this book. I, so a little talk. bit. Yes. Um, I always like to leave something unexplained. Oh, there's in, plenty in the unexplained. That, yeah. That's people like me who like to have the ghosts be somewhat yeah. real. They, they will I, be satisfied. I, I love a ghost story more than anything. So, mm. um, but I'm trying to kind of strike balance. Mm. Uh, although, I think book four might be quite ghost centered. But anyway, oh, um, <laughs> I have to have that conversation with my editor before I have it with you. Um, <laughs> uh, gothic, yes. Yeah, so, um, they read a lot of gothic fiction. They loved German gothic fiction, which is um, which was basically the beginning of everything we we think of as gothic now began in Germany. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm certain, we don't have evidence of this, but I feel instinctively that they must have read Frankenstein. Oh, I feel yeah. She gets a couple mentions in this. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I, I think that the structure of Wuthering Heights and the structure of Frankenstein is very similar. That kind mm. of circular story in two halves. Um so I just feel that they had to have read that. And also, they're you know, so familiar with Byron, so familiar with Shelley. It makes no sense to me that they wouldn't have picked up a copy of Frankenstein. And I've also been reading a lot about other 19th century writers, more commercial, penny dreadful writers, actually, who um, a lot of their names have just dropped out of history. But it seems to me highly likely that, you know, at least a couple of those stories would have passed around the Bronte family so one way or another um, because they were fascinated with ghost stories. They absolutely loved them. And you think about Jane Eyre, it's, it's got, you know, the Red Room, which is one of the most terrifying scenes for me when I read that as a little girl. It scarred me for life. And the the moment in, in Jane Eyre when Bertha we don't know it's Bertha stands over Charlotte's bed with a candle looking at her and then snuffs out the light what that's terrifying <laughs> um, <laughs> so, so I feel that they probably just did have an interest in that kind of fiction and I think they really probably really enjoyed it and so I love I love and I really enjoy it so I love kind of including that sort of mystery and suspense and and a mild bit of terror in uh mild peril in what i'm doing <laughs> quite a lot of peril in this one actually uh yeah and i think uh you know the other character i was thinking about who i just really loved is the doctor's wife uh, who yeah <laughs> their csi uh yes she is their csi right i love celia she's such a great character um Yes, she's brilliant, and and because she because she wasn't allowed to hold a medical degree at that time, but she was allowed to go to um, medical school, so she knows everything that her husband knows. She may even well 
be better doctor than him but um of course she officially can't be so she's at home um while her husband is uh out doctoring um uh, doing charity work but also on the side helping the sisters with their um, forensic needs <laughs> as, as far as she can in 1845 you know um one of the things that's interesting is how much uh religion uh, is always followed closely by its shadow. I mean, it, the more religious we see, especially in the Gothic, the more we know that that dark shadow is just a couple of steps behind. So I'd like you to mm. talk about creating that kind of feel where the characters themselves are, you know, extremely religious and, and really believe in that, yet... Um, they always are well aware of that of that shadow behind and the and the idea of devil worship and, and other yeah. the spirit the ancient spirits of the land that you are referring to earlier having a say in matters as well. Yes, I mean it, it, it's their worldview. They you know they they are Christian women. That's what they 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 are all very devout Christian women. Maybe Emily a bit less so. But definitely Anne and Charlotte. Um, and it's important if you're going to write these characters, it's important to honour their very fundamental, you know, their important beliefs, beliefs that were absolutely core to their identity. And um, I, I, I think it's incredibly important part of who they were. Um, and for Anne, certainly to her, her purpose in life was, you know, the way that she felt she could best serve God was to try and do her best to make the world a fairer and more equal place. So um, understanding, getting into understanding their religious uh, temperaments and their worldview is really important in order to understand them. And to honour it as well, to treat it as in a way that, you know, it's, it's an incredibly important part of who they are. Um, but as I said earlier, they do, they did also grow up with all of the old ways, the, the ways that have been entrenched in the British countryside since, you know, the Romans invaded and way before Christianity. And ways that, you know, those ways that are still with us uh, to this day. So, it is that sort of interesting compartmental compartmentalization. Is that a word? Yes. Uh, they they are able to firmly believe in a Christian doctrine, firmly believe in heaven and hell, firmly believe it that God is good and there is only one God and God is is all. Um, and at the same time, you, you know throw a little bit of salt over their left uh, over their left shoulder in, if they happen to spill any or um you know get a, a twig of, of a rowan tree and leave it on the windowsill to keep away witches because both things happen concurrently um and I, that's just you know I, that's quite fascinating to me that they have two such firm belief systems living with synchronicity when they're at also at the same time technically opposed but not universally i think and in a modern from a modern perspective it's easier to sort of think of the spiritual world as something that you can access from through a hundred different 
doors and, and different religions and doctrines if you if you want to and but but that it's basically the same thing um in 19th century there there wasn't that belief you know it was this or nothing so um i i think it just goes to show their sort of broad-mindedness actually that they weren't ever shutting out one older beliefs because they had faith in newer beliefs that makes sense absolutely well i think it's the old saw that you know a sign of intelligence is to be able to embrace contradictory notions yeah and and that was something they were good at and that's essentially what made them both good writers in you know important people in their time but also makes them great characters (laughs) so talk about using that kind of like the ability to believe in this and act on that because they are pretty pragmatic i think in this book they need to be that's the if you're going to solve a, a mystery as they do in this book it has to do with with the the chimney and the hall and what lies in there and i'll let the readers discover that um but if you're going to solve that you need to pay attention to what's what you have in your hands and can hold <laughs> Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, they are pragmatic, but I think each of them are people of two halves. You no, know? mm-hmm. Charlotte, half of Charlotte really wanted a, li- a domestic life, um, to be married, to have children, and half of her wanted the whole world to know her name. Uh, you know, half of Emily is kind of mystical and gone away with the fairies and living in in her imaginary world and half of her is saving money on the housekeeping because you know nobody's got a job it's like so so they they are these you know Anne on the one hand is very um devout christian but she's also very rebellious she she wants to be a good Christian, but she also wants equality for women, and she doesn't believe that uh, women should stay in an abusive marriage just because they're married. Um, and these are the contradictions that make them really interesting, and as human beings, but also the contradictions that make them really good detectors because they can see both the sides of the argument, and they can sort of follow. I mean, for example, there's a passage in the book which I really love when Tabby sends them to go and see a witch. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love that passage because it makes me laugh a lot. But but they're absolutely 100% on board with going to see a witch without any question. <laughs> this witch knows what she's doing. Um, at the same time as, you know, attending their father's sermons on Sunday. So, yeah, if they have to follow those less likely leads because that's the that is as you say what they literally have in their hand sometimes it's what they literally have in their hand much to tabby's horror um and they have to acknowledge the sort of darker and more sinister practices that may still be abroad in in the country and that may still be behind the mystery that they have to solve they have to go there and and for them the end goal is the truth and so whatever it takes to get to the truth they will do you know for all the gothic atmosphere and, and the the very intense and wild windswept moors and emotional undercurrents and tragedy these books are 
you know, there's a really interesting sense of humor that runs through every page, every sentence you write practically. It's a very <laughs> droll and dry sense of humor, and there are lots of really great kind of lines in here that keep the reader smiling and keep the, the story just a little bit lighter so it's it's super fun to read because you get to go between, you know, terrifying monsters, essentially, whether human or otherwise, and, and kind of you know, very witty, intelligent uh, women living out in the in God knows no middle of nowhere. So talk about <laughs> writing this with a sense of humor that you might not, you might look, need a microscope to find in, in the sister's own writings. Um, I don't know, actually. The Jane Eyre is quite funny. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she's terrible blunt which makes her very funny um and she has her moments of humor um <laughs> I, the thing is, is that they they in their letters so i suppose that the closest thing we have is charlotte's letters to her friend ellen nussie and she had a really good sense of humor you and would imagine was, that and and you do imagine that which is what's yeah. so great she had great you know she was often having a little bit of a joke at the expense of people that she'd met sometimes or at her brother's expense sometimes but you know she was a witty woman and uh i think we whenever we read about their lives it's sort of tragic it's just tragic it's like they were young they wrote this book then they died and it's really sad um which is true but also can you imagine three sisters and a brother hanging out together and not having not joking with each other, not teasing each other, um, not trying to constantly get one up on the other one, because uh, I can't, you know, and I'm just, that, for me, that seems more natural. And also, I do, I do want to bring some joy into their lives, uh, you know, through these books, not that they didn't have joy in their, in their real lives, but just that we can see them in a more joyful an entertaining light um and besides uh, it just it just makes me very happy <laughs> so, right. and i i do write about quite dark subjects mm. um it is dark this book is a, the subject matter in this book is is dark banished wide is pretty dark the next one the base mystery is pretty dark and so i think it's important to have on top of that the the contrast of the light and the warmth and the affection that they have each other for each other even if they are mercilessly teasing one another you know uh you one of the things you're doing in this books too is tracing their growth as writers and that for us is also really super interesting to see you know like these people we know will write books that will literally change the world and dominate literature for centuries to come to see them like be nervous about sending out their first you know book of poems and stuff so talk about about, uh you know creating that sense and it's also a sense of tension for us oh my god they're gonna they're getting rid this this book this place is gonna show up in that book so talk about uh, tracing their writing lives in the midst uh, as part of the plot i well it's it's um it's quite lovely to do really because um you know as a writer i have um i've kind of lived their writing lives in many ways <laughs> and i think the wonderful thing about charlotte particularly is that because we have a lot of her letters 
we know the torture she went through on her writing journey. We know how she was full of self-doubt and imposter syndrome. Charlotte Bronte was full of self-doubt and imposter syndrome. Um, that's something to think about. She, and we know that the poems were published, but only two copies were ever sold. Um, and they gave some copies away, but the rest of them were basically, Smith and Elder took them and re-jacketed them uh, after the success of Jane Eyre, I think. Um, but so their first foray into published writing, they paid for it themselves. It was essentially a vanity publisher. They lost quite a lot of money. Only two copies were sold. It was well-reviewed uh, in two places, but that was it. And mm -hmm. so for anybody else, that could have been the beginning and the end of their writing journey, but not for these women. They were, <laughs> they were not going to have it. Um, and so it's in the, in the Bronte Mysteries, we haven't got to that bit yet. <laughs> they were still, they've just had their book accepted for publication by Islet and Jones. Um, and that's a big, exciting moment for them. We haven't seen what comes next. Um, but what the, the story as writers tells us is a huge amount of resilience, particularly from Charlotte, because Wuthering Heights and Agnes Grey both found publishers and uh, Charlotte's first novel, The Professor, was rejected by everybody. And, um, and you know, if you imagine that your two sisters have just had massive success at the thing, you most, very most want in your life and you have failed, the temptation would be just to sink into a pit of despair, like Branwell, right? Mm. But no, she wrote Jane Eyre. So, um, <laughs> so to, to track that kind of determination and passion and inspiration that they developed together, sparking off one another, um, is really, really joyful for me. And it's easy to understand or the nerves and the anxiety and the and the thrill of success and the and the absolute dark desperation of failure because as a writer I've been through all of those things myself. You know, uh, I'm wondering, uh, you you finished the third book? Nearly, yeah. Oh, okay, and so you're already looking at the fourth. This is this I, is very exciting. Hiding to me. Um, in terms of the pacing, there's two. You're now at the point where you're dealing with two very different plots. There's the plot within each novel, but there's the plot of the series itself, which also is very complicated because it's parts of parts. And so, talk about plotting the series as a whole, and how much you, there's only so much you can do in a sense. I mean, technically, yes, there is only so much I can do. Um, we have about, what is it, oh, 1846, so we don't have very long left now. Um, oh, God, that makes me really sad. Um, we've got two years. Uh, so I plan to take the series through the publication um, of their books up until... Um, Branwell probably dies. I think I probably would leave it there. Mm. Um, but I can make that last as long as I want, actually. Sure. <laughs> because 
you know, the sections usually take not that long, mm-hmm. say a few days to a week. I could easily write a hundred books in that time. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I'm, I'm hoping you do. I'm planning for six books uh, in in total, um, unless they become wildly popular. Um, and I want to have that arc of the. I want to take Charlotte through the through the failure of the professor and and the rising up and the brilliance that she, you know, she, she responded to that failure with so much brilliance. And I wanted to see Emily's struggling with having her work in the public domain and struggling with criticism and Anne's kind of fiery determination to write what she thinks is important and not just what people think, think she should write. So that will definitely come in, in the, in probably in the, in the, latter two books um more i should think it's diff it it and another thing that i'd really like to do if i get the chance is to write a brussels prequel mm. uh, because <laughs> as you know charlotte and emily were in brussels mm. um and charlotte fell in love with uh, her tutor mr heger monsieur heger i should say and i just think it'd be super fun to write um uh, Brussels prequel mystery with Emily and Charlotte and somehow get Anne in on it. I'm not quite sure how, but somehow. <laughs> I've been speaking with Bella Ellis, also known as Rowan Coleman. Her new novel is The Diabolical Bones. Thank you for joining me, Bella. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.